This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Good evening, everyone. My name is Courtney Desiree Morris, and I'm an assistant professor of gender and women's studies here at the University of California, Berkeley. And I will be serving as the moderator for tonight's conversation. I am so delighted to welcome you all to the virtual book launch for our dear colleague, Professor Eric Stanley, and their powerful new book, Atmospheres of Violence, Structuring Antagonism and the Trans Queer Ungovernable. In this critical new work, Professor Stanley examines the persistence and intensification of historic regimes of anti-trans violence in the wake of the expansion of LGBT rights. Professor Stanley's work challenges all of us to consider the, liber- the limits of liberal inclusion and to pay close attention to the forms of violence that underwrite these seemingly progressive justice. I've been deeply moved by the book. I had the opportunity to read it over the last week or so, um, and I've basically been talking about it to anyone who will listen. Um, so if you've not had the opportunity to read the book, I want to encourage you right now to really engage with it. I think it's making some really important and necessary interventions in the field of feminist, trans, and queer studies that we should all be taking seriously. So I have the honor tonight of facilitating our conversation about atmospheres of violence, and I cannot imagine a more exciting gathering of critical scholar activists to discuss the complex issues that this important new work is really raising. So I will introduce our panelists shortly, but before I begin, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge exactly where we are. Specifically, I want to acknowledge that for those of us based in the Bay Area, this gathering and all of the work that we do is taking place on the unceded lands of the Wichi and Ohlone people. It's important for us to collectively acknowledge that we are guests on this land and that the dispossession of indigenous peoples remains ongoing. So if you have not done so, I want to encourage everyone to learn more about the ongoing work that Ohlone activists in the Bay Area are doing to facilitate the rematriation of their ancestral lands. And if you're participating in this gathering outside of the Bay, I also want to urge you to learn more about the indigenous caretakers of the lands that you inhabit and to actively support the decolonizing work that's happening in your community. So tonight's program is part of, tonight's event is part of the programming of the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. As many of you may know, this year marks the 30th anniversary of the establishment of the Department of Gender and Women's Studies here at Cal. So we'll be hosting a series of programs in the spring to commemorate and reflect on the department's history, its pivotal role in the field of feminist studies, and its future trajectories. So please visit our website at www.gws.berkeley.edu and sign up for our mailing list to stay up to date on all the programs and events that will be happening in the spring. I also wanna take this opportunity to thank the Othering and Belonging Institute, the Center for Research on Social Change, and the Center for Race and Gender for sponsoring tonight's event. Special thanks are especially due to Jillian Edgelow in BWS um, and to Robin Pearson, the Othering and Belonging Institute for their administrative and logistical support. So I want to talk a little bit about the structure of tonight's event. I'm going to begin by introducing our esteemed panelists who I'm really excited to be in conversation with tonight. Um, and that will then be followed by um, a reading from Atmospheres of Violence by Eric Stanley. And then once uh, Professor Stanley has had an opportunity to share some of their work, I'll then pose a few questions to our panelists to facilitate a conversation between, with and between our speakers. Um, and then we will open the event up um, 
and allow the audience to post questions. So do feel free to post your questions and comments um, in the comments and chat section um, of, the, of the program. And uh, we'll be filtering through those throughout the evening um, and giving you an opportunity to engage with Professor Stanley and our panelists. So with that, I want to briefly introduce all of our panelists. Professor Angela Y. Davis is Distinguished Professor Emerita in the History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Over the last 40 years, she's become known internationally for her ongoing work as a writer, educator, and activist, working to combat all forms of oppression in the United States and abroad. Her articles and essays have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, and she's the author of nine books, including Angela Davis, an autobiography, Black, the, black, the classic Black feminist text, Women, Race, and Class, Blue's Legacies in Black Feminism, Gertrude Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Billie Holiday, to Angela Wyatt Davis Reader, Our Prisons Obsolete, and The Meaning of Freedom. We're so honored to have Professor Davis here with us this evening. Thank you. We're also pleased to have with us Lavelle Ridley, who is an activist, abolitionist, and PhD candidate in English and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. Currently, she's working on a dissertation which examines contemporary life writing by Black trans women in the US and questions how a critical trans imagination informs how these writers creatively engage Black queer and feminist literary traditions, resist oppressive forms of state and social power, and moves us towards more liberatory Black queer trans world and freedom making. She's published work in GLQ, a journal of lesbian and gay studies, and PSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. Thank you so much for being with us. Next, we have um, Dr. Jules Gill Peterson, who is an associate professor of English and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She is the author of Histories of the Transgender Child, winner of the 2019 Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction, and the 2020 Children's Literature Association Book Award. Her work has been published in Transgender Studies Quarterly, GLQ. Women in Performance, and multiple edited volumes. She's currently developing a new book project entitled Gender Underground, A History of Trans DIY. Thank you, Dr. Gil Peterson, for being with us. We're also very pleased to have uh, Professor Dean Spade, who is an attorney, writer, activist, and associate professor of law at Seattle University School of Law. He is founder of the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, He's published extensively and is the author of Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of the Law, and Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During the Crisis. Thank you, Professor Spade. And then finally, I'm very pleased to announce my colleague who we're here to celebrate tonight, Dr. Eric Stanley. Eric Stanley is an Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. In addition to their new book, Atmospheres of Violence, they are the editor, along with Tourmaline and Johanna Burton of Trapdoor, Transcultural Production and the Politics of Visibility, and with Nat Smith, Captive Genders, Trans Embodiment and the Prison Industrial Complex. Professor Stanley is also an accomplished artist and filmmaker, and they co-directed the films Homotopia and Criminal Queers with Chris Vargas. Please join me in welcoming and celebrating Professor Eric Stanley. Thank you so much, um, Courtney and everyone. 
So um, I want to start out by uh, thanking all the behind the scenes labor that's happening and is continuing to happen to make this come off, um, including Robin, Mark, Christian, again, Jillian, as well as the entire department who has been deeply supportive of me and my work over the years. I'd also, of course, like to thank the panelists, Lavelle, Jules, Dean, and Angela, and our amazing moderator, Courtney. I'm extremely humbled by your participation and grateful for your enduring friendship. I should also say that Angela has been witnessing the unfolding of this project for more than 15 years. Um, some of this writing first appeared in graduate seminars that she was instructing a very long time ago. Um, so thank you. I want to especially thank my family, grown from Santa Cruz and San Francisco, and the various movements and collectives that have been that have welcomed me and continue to teach me everything I know. This book is, as I say, in the dedication for those lost to the world and all who remain as its antagonism. I want to briefly shout out three sites of struggle and ways we might support them, right? I'm also speaking from um, occupied Ramatush Ohlone land our support must be more than symbolic, so I invite you all to join the struggle to save the West Berkeley Shell Mound on University and Forth. It's an ongoing struggle. Um, I think we'll include a link. Um, the, the proceeds, the author's proceeds from this book, like my other books, are going to go to the LGBT Books to Prisoners Project, right? Because one of the primary things that people ask for that are incarcerated are more materials. And so any way that we can lend our solidarity, I think, is really vital. So join me in supporting LGBT Books to Prisoners or other Books to Prisoners projects. And also the campaign to free Ashley Diamond, who is one of the imprisoned theorists that I think with in the book. Um, so that's also an ongoing campaign that, again, we all should support. Um, and, you know, of course, November 2nd is always a historical day in this place misnamed the United States, not because of any elections, but because it's the anniversary of Asada Shakur's escape from prison. So I want to mark that as well. So I'm going to read um, just a few excerpts from the coda of the book, so the very end of the book. Um, and it starts with two quotes. And the first is, I'm not a liberated woman. I'm a transgender woman. And I'm working on becoming liberated as we speak. And that's from Miss Major who is our dear friend and comrade. She's also um, dealing with some health issues right now. And so if we can all center some healing light and energy, that will be much appreciated. The second quote is from Tourmaline and it's, it's easy to be free, it's easy to be alive. So for some context, uh, the beginning of this coda is attentive to the legal designation of ungovernability that often gets levied against trans and queer youth of color who live in and as refusal. So ungovernability then is both a sign of the law structuring cruelty and also perhaps a trapdoor out of it. I too was an errant youth. By the age of 14, I had already been expelled from school for the second and final time. I was charged with truancy, which was the name they gave my attempt to escape the extended torment of public education. It was then, as it is now, much easier to banish the survivor and to produce us as the problem of our own making than it is to confront violence's grind. My chronic absence was narrated as disruptive, 
not because I was actively distracting others, but because I exposed the fragility of that which kept us in class by escaping it. Indeed, their fear was not for me, a fact they emphatically confirmed, but that I might serve as referent for others to join us beyond the school's administration. My refusal to adhere to the lockdown of normativity's drive, expressed as unavoidable injury, was both the punishment for my escape and the catalyst for its persistence. Alone, together, the materiality of my survival was never singular. The intimacy of aid, a sofa, free food, a place to be when there was no other, offered a wayward community, however transitive. Without transcendence, we can't disregard violence's endurance, nor assume flight is always an option. Yet here, I want to hold the beloved networks of care that have helped us learn, as Tourmaline affirms that, quote, it's easy to be free. In the quake of her evocative precision, we know our undoing has not been undone. On the contrary, it continues to intensify. Nonetheless, radical dreaming affords us a space of ease, which is how we might learn to feel freedom. Among the figures whose freedom dreams have allowed for our shared endurance in a world that wishes otherwise is Miss Major. In the 1990s, Major was working at the Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center as a street-level service provider for low-income people in the neighborhood. She drove the outreach van and helped run the needle exchange program that provided clean syringes and other supplies to anyone who asked. Needle exchanges were then, and continue to be, semi-legal operations where direct action and mutual aid meet in the communal knowledge that distributing resources without expectations keeps us alive. Major is multiple. She is a Black trans woman by way of the South Side, by way of Deep East, now Little Rock. In the aftermath of at least two bloody uprisings, she was radicalized by Attica survival, survivor Frank Big Blacksmith in Dannemore Prison and on the streets outside the Stonewall. She is the maternal sign for many whose first mothers lost them. Her stories of survival, hooking and boosting, collect a wild history where getting by without getting got grows an ecology beyond the formalism of the state. Sinuous scams, fraudulent documents, and ever-changing identifications, her life on the run brought the world with her, anarchism in action. Here, ungovernability is not a scene of drifting chaos where power's account for survival always cuts along difference. That is democracy. It is an organized yet improvisational practice in common that revels in pleasure and expropriation whose aim is to collectivize exposure towards that exposure's abolition. Major's perpetual interruptions and illicit practices, the way she grows a Black trans social life in the ruins of the white world, unsettles the stone precision of the state's biometric drive. This, with the unruliness of trans queer youth who reject the corporal discipline of education and the emptiness of home, undoes the pledge of incremental personhood. While the scale at which revolutionary change most often becomes known might miss these minor acts, it is their building of another end of the world, while also allowing for life to fill it, that reminds us we never struggle alone. Together, 
our anti-authoritarianism is a force that wildcats the state in the covert, covert practices of skipping school, jumping turnstiles, and counterfeiting documents. Underground, we creep undetected through the dark alleys of recognition and below the frames of democracy's security cameras. While this book has dwelled for perhaps too long in the space of death, I end with the ungovernable, not because such practices negate violence, but because we, those who go on, must hold this incommensurability. If abolition's generativity names a presence of the world as much as it labors to end the one we cannot survive, then ungovernability not only refutes the state, it also figures the ease of living now. This is not to lay claim to the diminishing of modernity's structuring antagonism. If anything, this is an unfinished experiment in collective action, a recursive dream that builds on itself as pedagogies of rebellion always do. Yet, even in the place of trans queer celebration that is Major's laugh, we return to the banks of the River Jordan where we await Marcia, Sylvia, and all the others who were stolen from a world that could not bear their opulence. It is in this atmosphere of violence where getting ungovernable is both a trace of and a map for becoming liberated as we speak. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, for that beautiful reading. Just It's one thing kind of reading the words and sitting with them by myself, but then hearing you read them, I just have a completely different experience of the work. Um, it's, it's such a triumph on so many levels, aesthetically, analytically. Um, there's so much to get into. So with that, I wanna just go on ahead and move into our questions. I have a few questions I'd like to pose to our panelists and then try to leave plenty of room for um, conversation with our audience. I'm sure people are gonna wanna really dig into this work. So I wanted to start out, there was a question that um, Eric and I kind of crafted together and that um, I wanna maybe begin with you, Professor Davis, and get your thoughts on this and then invite other panelists to um, comment on this as well. Um, but there's a quote um, in the beginning of the book in the introduction that says, we're living in a time of LGBT inclusion. This is evidenced at least in the United States by the legal expansion of marriage, lesbian and gay military recruitment, and the proliferation of LGBT characters in popular visual culture. Against the narrative arc of rainbow progress that proclaims that these changes mark a radical shift in the social, atmospheres of violence argues that inclusion, rather than a precondition of safety, most properly names the state's violent expansion, end quote. Given the most recent wave of anti-trans legislation and cultural attacks, how might we think about the sort of quote unquote incorporative exclusion that Eric argues um, throughout the book. And I, I was also really thinking about this in relationship to more recent work by Kim Tallbear and the ways that she talks about how, you know, this sort of desire to perfect this settler colonial state that we, we have to accept on a certain level that um, settler colonial democracy cannot be sort of decolonized. And so, you know, I think Eric is making a kind of similar argument in terms of how we should think about anti-trans violence as a con sort of constitutive feature of the democratic state so that inclusion like representation is fundamentally a trap. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that um, and offer your thoughts on that argument, Professor Davis. You're muted, Angela. <laughs> Thanks. 
that's a um, perpetual notice. You're muted, Angela. <laughs> well, first of all, um, let me say that Eric has really offered us this phenomenal gift. Uh, and thank you so much, Eric. Uh, um, and thank you for the reading. I, too, was very moved by the reading aloud, uh, you know, having uh, read the book silently, it acquires a very different kind of life uh, when you speak the words. Uh, um, this book urges us to unlearn and rethink in, in ways that can, can hopefully potentially create the kinds of ruptures that we, we need to experience and to think and, and especially to feel. Uh, 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 atmospheres of violence ask us to tr try to begin the process of un, un um, of, of loosening our ties to foundational ideas that that always keep us glued to ways of thinking that inevitably reproduce what we think we are fighting against. Uh, and you know, I was thinking I earlier. Today, I attended a DEI meeting, diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, where I heard someone talking about the importance of integrating a particular program that is still all white. Uh, um, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's so distressing the ways in which these vocabularies uh, uh, accumulate uh, of vocabularies that militate precisely against the work that we think that we're doing. Um, when I first met Eric uh, many years ago, and is he, I couldn't remember exactly how many, but he says it was 15 years ago. Uh, and Eric was a first year student in history of consciousness. And I remember so vividly uh, your persistent critiques of assimilative gay movement strategies. Uh, 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 gay marriage, gay equality in the military, etc., uh, and 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 those critiques seem to so perfectly recapitulate the emphasis on integration as the goal of Black freedom struggles. Uh, integration, incorporation, as long as the larger structures themselves remain relatively intact. Uh, so I, I am so thankful for this work uh, that asks us to understand how Black trans women, trans women of color, take us to the limits of such inclusion and therefore begin to lay the groundwork uh, for uh, more fundamental critiques of democracy itself. Uh, uh, you know, there... there there's a lot that I could say, but I think that right now I'm just going to um, end by saying I really love the fact that this book undoes the major strategies for addressing racism, misogyny, homophobia, uh, trans misogyny. Uh, uh, and uh, you have um, made me think more deeply about uh, this question uh, 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 than I ever have before. So thank you very much, Eric. And anyone else who'd like to speak to that question, please, please feel free to do so. I would be totally happy to, to speak to it a little bit. Um, and also just to echo, 
yeah, my my profound sense of gratitude. I yeah, I felt very moved um, reading reading the book, and and also felt that feeling of of it being a gift, um, and 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 also a kind of call and a, and and an overdue in many ways reckoning. You know, maybe inside the academy, but. Um, but a reckoning that that has been in progress for a very long time in many places in the world, um, and and there, as much as there, I think, is a sense of of mourning and loss throughout the text. There's also a sort of electricity to to the possibility of leveraging, you know, the the structuring antagonism that the book takes up um, to understand that we really already do have the tools that we need to understand how to live now, right? And I think that one of the one of the narrative tendencies I really appreciate is this kind of disruption of the sort of utopian longing for the future that will repair either the damage of the past or the insufficiency of the present. And this sort of radical interruption of that to say that for those of us who are alive right now, uh, we're not willing to mortgage ourselves for a fantasy of a future that will never be delivered. And so thinking about you know anti-trans legislation you know, particularly the kind of intensity or or the stack of it this year and, and so much of it targeting women and trans kids. I mean, it's, you know, really trans women and trans children that are bearing this brunt. But actually, I think one of the things that this book really helps us think about is the profound inability of uh, kind of mainstream liberal pro-trans political movements to make any kind of affirmative defense of transness. I mean, I, I still profoundly think we have yet to encounter a single affirmative desire that children be trans, that women be trans, that trans people of color be in the world, any sort of wish uh, that they would walk this earth. And so I think we've seen, you know, just sort of, to my mind, some of the most disheartening attempts to oppose of course, really horrific legislation, but on the most conservative terms possible. And I think that this book gives us the perfect kind of set of analytics to understand how, you know, for instance, uh, you know, the way that trans childhood is being politicized right now, the ostensibly pro-trans side of that political struggle is really doubling down on one of the worst products of American you know, culture, which is the idealized white protectable child and this sort of idea that there is, you know, a disproportionately upper middle class suburban white trans child who is in peril of losing access to a very, very rarefied, expensive form of healthcare um, has really, I think, sort of led to a kind of doubling down on on the sort of worst model. Uh, and, And really, it's, it's, it's a sort of, you know, this kind of model of begging the state for, for the most limited form of recognition as a kind of private citizen. And also this demand that trans youth, and I'm so glad, Eric, that you read from the CODA, um, this demand that trans youth be placed back in the family. That that, as if, I mean, that to me is the only historical novel, historically novel thing we're witnessing right now about trans childhood. There's nothing new about trans kids, but the idea that they belong in, in families, uh, and that's the best place for them, is, I just think, shocking to any of us who grew up trans. Um, and, and also, it serves this sort of purpose of completely depoliticizing and never hearing from those youth. And I think one of the things that I've been the most concerned about, and I feel such a, a greater kind of clarity about having read this book is the sort of bait and switch here, this kind of mobilization in defense of a fantasized trans child in need of protection 
um, is really a way of continuing to avoid the vast majority of trans youth who frankly don't have the privilege of being kicked out of a gender clinic and are much more likely to already be subject to forms of policing and incarceration. And that really is our trans youth of color, you know, who are already, where basically transness and gender nonconformity is taken as an accelerant in a much older school to prison pipeline. And where transness is in fact denied, um, but its lack of recognition doesn't mean that it could be solved by inclusion because it's already being folded into systems that, you know, take gender non-normativity as evidence of deservingness to be, you know, further policed or, or further, um, yeah, dispossessed, you know, from a young age. So I really worry that this sort of, all of the kind of bad faith and red herrings of, of the current moment are serving just as much as they're serving the hands of fascism, you know, are also serving the kind of regeneration of liberalism at the moment when its, it's sort of whale is most unconvincing and exhausted. Uh, and, and I really kind of worry how many, you know, of those ungovernable black and brown trans youth are going to be sacrificed at the altar of this, of this dead fantasy of liberalism. Um, and this idea that, you know, lawsuits or whatever, you know, that sort of political, liberal political institutions can somehow be leveraged at the last second to bail us out. So, you know, I think that what, what Eric kind of does so brilliantly in this book is, doesn't read that, you know, as just a sort of statement of pessimism and, um, but rather understands that there really is a whole dynamic world uh, and that that energy, that, that power of the ungovernability, right? That moment where, where dispossession and threat and violence and security and police sort of um, can, you know, sort of metamorphize into that electric uh, uh, feeling of collectivity is something that is just totally missing, I think, from our political imaginary. And, and I guess the last thing I would say, and one of the things I really appreciate about this book is it, it gives us instruction on how to face what feels like the end of the world and demand that the world end on better terms and demand something as big as the violence that we are being met with in this, in this moment, something bigger and more capacious than a return to a fantasy of normal that never existed. Um, and I really think that we, we need not just the rhetoric of that or the analytic, but the affect, the feeling, right. Um, and the sense of solidarity and intimacy um, that is really enlivening. And I think helps us follow the wisdom in, in Tourmaline's, uh, meditation on how it's in fact surprisingly easy to be alive and easy to be free. So in that spirit, thank you all for, for being here tonight. And I know I certainly feel um, that kind of uh, intimacy and solidarity with each of you. So thanks so much for, for having us and I'm looking forward to the rest of the conversation. Uh, I can go next if that's all right. Um, just to echo um, what Jules and Professor Davis have already said, this uh, book that Eric has given us um, has so many different things. It's a um, definitely a blueprint for um, a method of thinking that will be extremely needed and necessary for folks working in the fields that we do, both academic um, and, uh, and activist as well. And um, since, uh, since affect kind of was the last thing that Jules um, hit on, I guess it, uh, I'll hit on that. And for me, what really marks this book as a fantastic, though 
difficult read um, is the overwhelming weightiness, the overall weighty affective charge that it has um, throughout um, encountering these multiple, multiple scenes of gruesome, excessive violence, you know, overkill um, and all that. And I think that there's a way that despite the the weight that one might feel when reading and the sense of um, the sense of despair or the sense of, you know, frustration, almost, almost of how do we get out of this? I know um, as a scholar and someone working in communities, I often take that thinking approach of, well, what do we do? And um, I think in addition to giving a really uh, talented and beautiful and evocative uh, narration of how structures um, structures of power actually use violence in particular ways, how it specifically gets mobilized for what ends and um, in service of whose um, power structure. Um, I think that the book does a good job doing that and also helps gives us a lens for how we can continue to think about those types of issues in overlapping and intersecting uh, communities. Um, thinking about um, queer and trans people here specifically, um, which, and I love how Eric does a wonderful job of um, of seamlessly allowing the reader to understand that it's not just, you know, queer and trans people written um, perfectly exactly, but also um, all swaths of communities of people who are marginalized and disenfranchised and who need access to um, need access to and benefit from any kind of gains that are made for the community, uh, which can be both um, positive in forms of mutual aid and community support, and also uh, a bit more negative in terms of things like, um, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex or charity or, you know, those other self-serving kind of, um, uh, you know, senses, sources of power that try to help people in communities. So, um and thinking about the uh, the incorporative inclusion that was embedded in that first question, uh, the book is actually helpful to me not only while uh, I can you know am writing my dissertation right now, so it of course has that value there, but it's it's getting me to totally rethink and readjust the way the epistemological and ontological ways that I've been thinking about not only trans and queer people on their own terms, but how within the context of global racial capitalism and neoliberalism um, and the carceral state, like how, how do the relationships and connections that people have in communities, despite these professed identities that were, you know, are always ours to claim along gender and race and class, but what, what is, what more than that, what beyond that is happening um, that constantly gets these kinds of people in these kinds of communities tripped up. And so when, and with Eric offering the, um, the term incorporative exclusion um, and reading that in the book, it reminded me of a concept that I'm working, working with and working through in my project. Um, right now, I have, as I have it written, it's a, a term called regimes of unprotection, um, which is an intentional riff off of what uh, police in our country, you know, have their claim as their normal model to protect and serve. Um, And in trying to find out and locate the contradictions and the mismatches that happen when we go into the archive and try to see how trans people and queer people, uh, peer people of color get treated by the state in its many different forms, we see overwhelmingly, and even especially here in the book, um, detailed these instances of violence, humiliation, um, 
just demonstrations of power that clearly shows out that there are intentional people and groups of people who are not meant to receive the full, you know, the full right or the full care that institutions that we live in are, are able to give and clearly can give. So, so this willingness to include what's a, include what's around you, but actually to exclude them because of how is how that process is being navigated, I think gives us a lot to think about, um, not only with the kinds of mobilizing that we'll do um, moving forward, but also just how we think about the modes of violence and the scenes of violence um, that we are always wrapped up in and living in, and how do we find a way to um, to to think creatively, to imagine, you know, to um, to resist or disidentify. Like I think it gives us a good uh, platform from which to produce some really solid response to um, the state and all those forms. This is such a fun conversation. Uh, it's so fun to hear you talk about this Lavelle in relationship to your dissertation, which I'm very excited about. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's so delightful to read this book after feeling like Eric has been influencing my thinking, you know, one of the main people influencing my thinking for so many years now and teaching me so much and then get to read the crystallization in the book, you know, of like all of that. Um, and I think Eric's language, as we heard with like the reading aloud at the beginning, is just like so beautiful and evocative. And there's so many phrases I've like underlined that just are like, oh, I, I could never say this quite, the, you know, it's just, um, it's really such an offering. Um, and I love this question and this, this phrase, um, incorporative exclusion, like, to me, when I, when I thought about this question, I thought about how like uh, this process of mainstreaming that we've seen with like gay politics and then later trans politics is like this process in which um, the national narrative comes to be that the state protects these people. And that happens a lot through things like, you know, hate crime laws and other, you know, marriage or whatever, all the things that um, Eric's work has critiqued in so many different brilliant ways for so long. And then like, meanwhile, the conditions on the ground for people like who are harmed by homophobia and transphobia, like don't get better at all. They actually get worse because it's happening at the exact same time that like the prison system is endlessly growing and like the immigration enforcement system is endlessly growing and the wealth divides are endlessly growing. And so it's like this, um, you know, it feels like especially queer and trans, like sort of uh, like the kind of conservative queer and trans politics that's most visible in the U S is like this cleanup job, you know, that tells us like, this is the front lines of the civil rights struggle. And this is the edge. And these people Right. It's like, you know, so heartwarming. These people are being protected and these incredibly disgusting, hated people are being protected. And then meanwhile, like nothing changes for those people, but this, but the narrative changes. And then also you get a backlash. So then you also get all this anti-trans legislation. So like you not only have to live in, of course, backlashes, you know, they're legal order, but they're also just cultural. It's like suddenly people all over your state are talking about how horrible you are. And so then what happens to you at the welfare office or in the bathroom at McDonald's is like that much worse specifically for those who are the most hated of the group who are visibly trans, who are homeless, who are disabled, who are people of color, who are, you know, like already disposable people, right? This, that, that harm doesn't fall upon like the, the people, like the protected white child, you know, in the same way that it falls upon um, uh, those who, who really reap that hatred. And so I just like that, the complexity, like, I mean, Eric's argument that things get worse when we're told they get better is so profound still even though we've seen this you know we could narrate all of the other fake progress of you know the united states government protecting supposedly you know supposedly protecting hated groups we can see that for our whole lifetimes and beyond it's um it's just very powerful that the way that eric tells those stories 
through these sites of violence um, and really shows like how that works. And I just feel like I kind of can't get enough of that question because it's so profoundly opposite of what we are supposed to think about progress and the specific like really wild messed up role that like LGBT people play in this progress narrative right now about like how the U.S. law is perfect and especially the global the global narrative about how the U.S. treats gay people right and other countries treat them bad so we should bomb them. I mean, just like broader use of this politics that is so deeply harmful and utterly delivers nothing to most queer and trans people's well-being and just how deep that is like, you know, yeah, so I just... The book um, is just deeply moving to me, and I like learned a ton of things I didn't know, um, and um, and like felt more deeply things that I really care about, and that I and that I you know feel like I've been traveling with Erica Long for a long time. Like, you know, when people do the work of a book, it's just like and work on these ideas for so long and think about them so carefully. It's just like I just feel I feel so grateful for like that um, that deeper level of understanding that that I get out of reading it, even while I've been listening to Eric talk about the ideas for years in different contexts of friendship or of academia or in Eric's films, et cetera. So yeah, I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you all for those really, um, like, I just feel like my mind is racing. I'm like, I want to talk about like black feminism and its conversations with trans and queer theory around ideas of futurity and, um, and living the fr living freedom now right? Living a future freedom now. There's something about that that I feel is so present in this work. Um, and so maybe I'll shelf that for later. And Eric, I'd like to maybe bookmark that for you to come back to later. But I, I was also really struck in um, both Jules and Lavelle and your comments talking about um, the question of violence, right? And how Eric approaches this question um, in the book. And, and the book Really, you know, you, you know, Eric, you're really insistent about kind of staying with the trouble of violence um, in the work. And, you know, on the one hand, you sort of are, you know, there's something I think part of what's so moving about the work and the writing is how you hold these stories of violence with so much care. And there's, uh, and there's a, a clear sort of deliberative process around kind of the ethics of narrating these scenes of, of anti-trans violence and like how to represent that violence and, and what we think are sort of the political, like what's the political payoff, right, of, of narrating these scenes of violence in this way. And so I wanted to ask, um, I think I wanted to start maybe with Lavelle um, about, you know, your thoughts on kind of the ethics of narrative, of sort of narrativizing anti-trans violence um, and how we sort of bring these scenes into representation and how, you know, most importantly, do we really remain um, accountable to the victims of these forms of anti-trans violence as we narrate these experiences. Yeah, thank you, Courtney. That's a um, a really good, well thought out <laughs> formulation of questions that um, I'm excited to talk about. Uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, thinking about uh, Eric's book, Atmospheres of Violence, you know, violence is kind of the, um, one of the main objects that's under review here. And um, about halfway through the book, maybe sooner than that, is as I was reading, I, is when I realized, oh, okay, so we are we are thinking about violence, but we're thinking about violence in this very particular way, so that we can see a very particular picture at the end of the of the book about what what is what is the true task at hand to to borrow their language that they use sometimes in the book. So, um, but I think specifically with this um, this issue, this question about representation and um, um, how like the the constant returning to the scene of um 
of violence and how you deal with it. I mean, I'm sure like many other people, I uh, just based off of my training and when I read these texts, it makes me immediately think of um, Sadia Hartman uh, and Fred Moten, who are talking to each other in some of their earlier texts about, you know, um, uh, recreating the scream, you know, from uh, from uh, one of yeah. the great, uh, you know, slave uh, slave narratives of the time. I believe Frederick Douglass is, and how they both give kind of a meditation on, you know, how do how do we do this? You know, we're probably not going to do it the best way we could, but how do we how do we discuss violence in a thorough and critical way, in an attempt to get somewhere that doesn't still reproduce that violence, even though we're not coming into the scene of violence with the same. Um, expectations, the same politics, the same goals, or anything like that. And I think that here in Atmospheres of Violence, Eric has actually done a really good job of um, not only signaling the that deep emotion that comes with having to address those kinds of things, but also I really appreciate what they say, which is just, you know, I don't, them saying, I don't know, you know, what we can do ultimately, but I'm going to sit in this violence and not reproduce violence where I, not reproduce violence where I can, but rather not let, not let um, here thinking specifically about the case of Duana Johnson, um, who's in um, incarcerated and then gets attacked by uh, officers in the name of their self defense. Um, you know, in, in that part of the book, in that scene, uh, Eric says, you know, it, it would be it would be flattening to her image to not look. It would be almost as treating her as the non-image. It would be putting her, relegating her to that scene of the negative that is already being done by by power forces and power structures, right? And so that ambivalence and lack of certainty of what to do, I think uh, indexes that effective relationship that we as scholars of the trans queer, ungovernable, um, of abolition and the end to these structures as they exist in service of something that might be better, um, I think it's a, a really well um, and effectively well done job of staying, staying in the violence, staying with the violence before, but for the use of actually demonstrating the kinds of violences happening here and, and that those particular violences don't keep getting done. And it was a, a really big learning. Um, it was a good learning moment for me as someone who is, um, open and uh, you know I, I will talk about the murders of um, I mean anyone but like trans women of color specifically um, incarcerated women of color um, though I don't post about it a lot and you know in social media and things like that but so it gave me a good chance to reflect on you know what's what's the violence being done there in that scape in that schema and then what's the where is the repair attempting to be found to be found so that these people don't just get relegated to the space of non-being because because we refuse to look at them. So I think that's both important writerly practice for those of us, you know, writing um, uh, projects that think about death and think about violence in these kinds of ways and using these kinds of analytics, but it's also good for our own, our own personal sense of self and um, the care and the intention that we bring to um, talking about these these moments of violence in a way so that it doesn't just repro- reproduce the social's need for violence to be talked about, especially violence that can that that is uh, it you know that functions within the liberal state that Eric that Eric argues you know doing a particular kind of work that maybe we on our end don't want it to be doing so.
Others, please feel free to jump in on this question. Okay, maybe I'll say a few words. Um, and to tell the truth, um, I had really expected to experience um, the effect of wanting to close my eyes, of um, feeling compelled to look away. Um, but but Eric has so um, carefully considered uh, the um, you know possible consequences of narrating violence in a particular way. The, the pitfalls of uh, of a politics of representation that assumes that seeing the violence will either be arousing or it will be um, spine chilling. Uh, so what what absolutely impressed me was uh, that that Eric has sort of created a register where this violence uh, can be represented in a way that really that really makes us want to stay there. And not, not so much um, to move beyond it, but to see what is available to us if we don't turn away. Uh, and I don't know whether I had ever quite experienced that uh, in the same way. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that it's a meditative register, but it, it's, a, it's a kind of reflective register that, makes us aware that we cannot gloss over the violence. Uh, you know, whether it is state violence, stranger violence, intimate violence, um, self-inflicted violence. And, you know, as someone who always likes to point out that, um, that Black trans women are consistently the targets of more forms of violence uh, uh, than any other population, it made me it made me um, think of more critically about uh, uh, this assertion that I so often uh, make. Uh, uh, and um, it made me think about it as, I guess, statistics, as, as a realm of statistics that actually prevents us from understanding, um, as Eric uh, puts it, that that violence is is not antagonistic uh, to uh, uh, the condition that we're uh, thinking about, uh, but rather it is a fundamental element. It's a structuring element. Uh, and that if we treat it as exceptional, and if we treat trans and queer people as the exceptional targets of this exceptional practice, then we don't grasp the nature of um, the, um, the democracy that we are so often compelled to desire despite itself. Uh, uh, and I think you've accomplished something really remarkable, uh, Eric, and, and I certainly hope uh, that uh, 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 it allows us to move away from discussions about whether the violence should be narrativized uh, or whether it should be uh, left alone. But thank you so much. I, so I, 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 I feel as if I'm still reeling with the, the kind of uh, um, 
uh, effective response that uh, your uh, writing has called up in me. And it makes, it, it makes me want to rethink uh, so many, you know, other conversations uh, uh, about violence. I really appreciate what you just said, Angela, about what it felt like to read it. Um, because I really avoid reading accounts of violence as much as possible, and then and then just and then choose to read them where I where I really want to have that sober discernment and know it. But I try to avoid reading excessive accounts of violence. And I really experienced this book as like it's. I felt, almost feels like it's like teaching us how to be with the realities of the violence in a way that is about sober discernment about the world in which we actually live and what this violence does instead of just rehearsing it again or rehearsing it for shock value or rehearsing it to generate some kind of thin pity or some kind of thin outrage. I just, it's like, it's, it made me think a lot about how people are in denial about climate change. Like even people I love who would say climate change exists still don't want to actually think about how actually thing bad things are and what that might mean for our preparedness and for the urgency of our action there's a kind of like look away and it's like, I think that also happens with these kinds of violence. And it's like, Eric is the, the style of writing. And I, I mean, I think that this is a style that comes from Eric, like your own practice of building a capacity to be with in sober reality. Like so much of my experience of you as someone who's intervened on my thinking has been about like being willing to look at like really how truly bleak everything is at a different level and, and, and like letting me see it. And maybe I've, I found your influence to be like sobering in that way again and again, like, and, and deeply radicalizing. And so I guess I feel like there's something about your practice that you, a kind of discernment you're able and like being with you're able to do. And then you, you wrote it that way, which is like so hard. I can't even imagine how you did that. And then I read it that way. And I'm curious, as it just feels so different from the thing I constantly critique of like the overrepresentation of violence against hate groups and, you know, marginalized people, it feels like it has a really different quality and it like built, built a capacity in me. It was like a pedagogical experience for me. It's re just really interesting and, and, um, and very moving. Well, just to add to that, I think this is a really important line of thinking. Um, and and I think one of the riddles that we confront, if I could speak particularly to trans misogyny or racialized trans misogyny, you know, is overexposure. It is this visual economy in which uh, there has been an education in desire, the desire for images of suffering, violence, and death. Uh, and and I think one of the ways that that the book is sort of eclipsing a kind of standard antagonism between invisibility and visibility or uh, witnessing and ignoring, right, is that witnessing must, you know, witnessing requires an alternate pedagogy in order to build a capacity to witness effectively. Um, and either, you know, not to be moved in some 18th century enlightenment or 19th century sentimental tradition of being moved, um, but also for those of us who feel implicated in the circulation of those images to not be destroyed by them. Um, and, and, you know, similarly to, to a lot of you, I mean, I generally avoid uh, consuming more <laughs> accounts of violence than, than I would come across in my own life anyways. But I, I almost want to, yeah, make the case that, that part of what the book is doing 
is maybe shifting a little bit or putting pressure on this sort of visual regime itself. The idea that our job is not so much to see um, with all of the kind of, you know, implications that, that come with that grammar and that, you know, sort of Western tradition of, of vision being equated with reason or, or mastery and the ableism bound up in it. But, but a sort of, um, yeah, I think, I think a sort of pedagogy that begins with a question as complicated actually as what violence, what kind of violence, what kinds of violences, what, when we, I think there has been a kind of characterizing of violence that is surely, you know, one of the kind of derivative effects of liberal political culture where we think we, you know, violence is sort of a placeholder word sometimes that there, oh, there's so much violence, you know, um, and, and it kind of flattens the, its differences and it flattens its different forms, right? And I think for, to use the example of trans misogyny, one of the things that's really powerful but difficult in the book, right, is understanding that something that has been concretized as being a problem of the individual, say in the trans panic defense, right, is actually nevertheless our window into understanding what it means to think of trans misogyny as constitutive, right, of the, of the gendered order, of the racialized gendered order in which the United States, you know, has, has uh, come, into, come into being and helped construct this order in which trans women's existence is read as ontologically aggressive in a way that then allows the person who fantasizes that as threat to seek any revenge that they want, right? And I think this is where the concept of overkill, I mean, it was, it's very difficult to sit with, but it's really compelling, right? The idea that, you know, the murder, the violence uh, that has been normalized against trans women of color and black trans women is not content merely uh, with extinguishing their life. It's, it's, it's a form of brutalization that has to go beyond uh, a kind of, you know, you're alive or you're dead, right? Um, and, and I think that, again, the kind of question then is, well, what if we already live in a culture that has normalized the consumption of those images because the United States has normalized the consumption of images of Black death and suffering for so long, and trans misogyny becomes a kind of constitutive, you know, way to, to represent that in one particular gendered register. And then the question is not so much like who, who needs to see this or, you know, um, how can we be moved by seeing it? Rather, we're way past that. Like that, that threshold was crossed so long ago. <laughs> um, that sort of, you know, the ruse is, is everyone who's trying to put it back in front of us as if we haven't already dealt with that. Um, and there's something that I found surprisingly, um, yeah, capacitating about that, I suppose, in the sense that, you know, I think it asks this question about how we demand so much nonviolence from marginalized people. I mean, one thing I was thinking about is even how much queer and trans studies, right? And this is where I think the, the Fanon, the France Fanon in the book is so helpful. Um, it's like anyone who has lived through colonialism or settler colonialism or, you know, like would, you know, the idea that if you experience extreme violence as structuring your life in the world, that your job is to never respond. And, and this sort of demand, the, hagio the hagiographies that we perform on people like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, the complete denial of their material everyday lives and the struggles they were embedded in, just to sort of, you know, sanctify them as if they were, their value comes through what? Endurance, uh, you know, surviving for some amount of time. And as if that kind of, 
yeah, I think just this sort of strange moralizing impulse that 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 queer and trans people, especially people of colors, kind of suffering is what validates their value to us. I mean, it's this sort of necropolitical logic that other people have written about very beautifully. But but I think there is a, a, a sort of powerful to me defiance of that, right, and a suggestion that the people already subject to that violence, like there's no riddle. We're already living through it. We, you know, if we're going to be walking, waking up every morning, we've already figured out enough of a way to negotiate for that day, right? I mean, one of the things I have been a little bit kind of stuck with this semester teaching with students is, you know, sometimes offering a difficult text, say from the mid-century or the 60s or the 70s, something that does include a lot of scenes of violence and talking to students and kind of trying to dig in their sense of surprise in reading and, and, and as I've sort of scratched at that, what are you surprised about? Some of it is sort of the sense that I'm getting from students that I'm just surprised that people experience that much violence and still like had lives, still had lovers, still had parties, still, you know, lived for decades, often into to old age, still organized, didn't give up on their struggles, didn't give up on their communities. And I was trying to think about how that like that that surprise is implanted, you know, that it, it's itself an education, right? That is sort of, you know, uh, implanted in us from a young age that is actually dependent on our constant consumption of, of, a, of a different narrative of violence, right? So that we are trained to actually consume it and be proximate to it so we don't have to, so that we can also continue to be surprised by it, right? I mean, it's just this very vicious cycle. Um, and, and there's just a really interesting kind of disruption, I think a kind of centrifugal force in this book that starts to unwind that, right? And so, you know, whereas I'll say in the first chapter, I was still, I, you know, I was tightened up. I was kind of, you know, I was really, really having a hard time sitting with some of the violent scenes. And, and I had felt a kind of, um, I don't know, it's just a fennel in the mind, but a kind of relaxation of the muscles towards the end of the book that felt like phenomenologically instinctive and important in some way. And this kind of like, you know, thinking about um, this whole array of people that we meet in the book who certainly, you know, experienced and endured a lot of violence, but also responded and were active in response to it and asked for people to be militant and asked for people to take up the struggle along their side, right? And not people who just sort of ascetically endured it um, in, in, in one sort of palatable kind of, you know, sanctified or saintly sort of way. So I, I don't know, I, I've kind of spun out here, but um, I, I just really want to, 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 to underline that. There's something that really hit differently for me than other scholarship that I've read that I think generally will just try to overcompensate for the perceived exceptional violence directed, say, at trans women of color by over-idealizing them and saying that, well, they're the most oppressed, but they're also the most revolutionary. And to me, it's a closed loop of knowledge that, you know, around Sylvia and Marsha, let's say, it started to form in the 70s. You can read Gay Liberation you know, pamphlets from the 70s that say we need to consider Sylvia, right? It's the same grammar of, of utopia to come if only we idealize these people who we didn't stand up for in the first place, right? And in that case, you know, it's really on their backs of those gay liberationists in the 70s. They really were the ones that did that selling out, right? But here we are having inherited that. And I just think it's really curious, right? The way that that kind of mainstream LGBT political discourse has worked so hard to platform 
trans women of color in this recuperative mode that I think, unfortunately, has really pulled us even further away um, from the kind of questions of witnessing and, and capacitation that, that we're talking about here tonight. So I really, I really encourage people to think with that and, and really read carefully the introduction to the book, which I, I will say, sorry, last thing, I know I'm talking a long time, but I really think it's one of the best treatments I've seen of Sylvia and Marcia in any scholarly work that, that actually really does refuse to idealize them in the name of our contemporary political desires and asks what actual projects and needs did they have during their lives lives that were unfinished, uh, but that were also collective and exceeded them. And so we don't arrive at Sylvia and Marcia as saints to, that we have to elevate as icons, but we actually think of them as complex individuals who leave unfinished business that, that it would be best to take up. Um, I wanted to offer one more question to our panelists and then open the conversation up. There's been a lot of conversation in the comments and people have many, many questions for the panelists and for Eric. So I just wanna offer this last question and move into that conversation. Um, and especially, you know, Jules, as you were making reference to Eric's engagement with the work of Fanon in the piece, it seems really appropriate to end on this last question. And so, you know, in the book, Eric, you really engage with multiple genealogies of critical theory ranging from Franz Fanon to Benjamin to Sylvia Winter. And the book also, perhaps more importantly, understands people organizing in prisons, sex workers, trans artists, and street queens to be offering radical theorization that's as important as the work of these critical thinkers that you engage with. And so how do you see this or other people who are on the panel, can you talk about how you see this book being useful beyond the academy, being useful um, in social movements, being useful for organizers and people who are doing anti-trans um, you know, revolutionary work on the ground? How do you see this work traveling beyond of the academy. I'll leave that open. I'll say a couple of things. Um, I think that realistically, we who write books know that people mostly don't read books. <laughs> so, you know, let's all be real about that. Um, I am at what I think is likely to happen, which is what happens with all the rest of the books we all write that we hope are helpful, is that people will talk about the ideas in it together. And I think that the ideas in it are just really pushing this conversation a lot further and and like I mean I'm just already like there's the pictures I've taken of different pages and emailed them friends like did you know this history did you know this thing I mean I just I that's I think probably how a lot of this will travel just being real that like a lot of this stuff travels in little pieces and I think that people will take chapters out of this book and use them in classrooms which is really great because then people can be forced to read them by their teachers um just because that's how it is now um and I hope that's not like too silly or like rude in some way to say but um just my own experience of writing books and thinking that you know let's be real about that um but I think this book is like so densely full of um like just like accounts that are just that like change how we think about everything. I mean, I think a lot of it was just being discussed about even about Sylvia and Marsha. And so I, I imagine that, that that's how it will circulate is that people will be like, oh my gosh, like that, that page I read or that, the, you know, whether they read it in school or whether they picked it up on their own and are talking about it to friends who are like less likely to read this book or a book. Um, I feel like that's, you know, now, nowadays when we write things, they get like um, passed around in a different way. Also the ways that we used to pass things around in zines like by like photocopying one page of the book or um, but I think in particular people pass things around by like taking little parts of it and putting it on social media and I think a lot of that will influence conversations and just talking to each other about the ideas. I think there's something interesting happening now where like reading books is like maybe harder than it used to be because people's attention spans are shorter but also I think radical books are really having like a popular moment too um, and so 
Um, I'm not sure how that all relates, but I think that this book is is part of that moment. People are asking new questions about abolition, new questions about anarchism um, that this book has like so much to say about. So I feel like it's going to be shaping conversations a lot. You know, I can actually imagine this book being read um, by a reading group inside of a prison. Um, And, you know, I think um, sometimes we assume that just because a book is not an easy read, uh, that people who are not accustomed to academic study are not going to sit with it and spend time with it. Uh, uh, And I, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Foucault argued uh, uh, that he wrote uh, Discipline and Punish for prisoners. The reason he wrote the book was to allow them to engage in discussions about uh, the consequences of their own condition. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But I do believe uh, that uh, uh, reading groups inside prisons can be encouraged to read this book, it takes time to read it. Uh, you know, just as Eric is asking us to be willing to stay with the violence, to stay with the problems, uh, um, uh, who has more time to do that than people who are doing time? Uh, so I want to, you know, I really want to think about how we might um, in, encourage uh, 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 the reading of this book um, um, in prisons. And I'm actually thinking about uh, places where uh, there's a uh, connection between a class inside a university and a class inside uh, a prison. I was uh, down at Pomona uh, last week and they have an ongoing um, uh, uh, group that takes place over Zoom uh, where people in prison engage with people who are in the classroom. And as a matter of fact, I may ask one of the professors to consider this, uh, uh, you know, for uh, the, the reading list. Uh, but I think this, would, this is also a, a book that can teach people how to think. Uh, and if it takes a year to get through it, uh, uh, that's okay, you know, <laughs> Um, and especially people who have the time uh, uh, might be able to instruct us in ways uh, uh, that uh, uh, might not otherwise be possible. Uh, so I, I you know, I want to see activists reading this book. I want to see them maybe taking, um, you know, one chapter at a time and spending, uh, you know, maybe um, spending a month on a chapter uh, or more. Uh, and, and, and I think this can, can help to um, um, challenge the assumption that, um, that you know, only uh, those who've had a certain kind of academic uh, preparation are capable of uh, in, in engaging with difficult ideas. Thank you. Any others? All right. Well, then I want to shift gears a little bit and open it up to questions and comments that we've gotten from the audience. There are quite a few questions. Um, And so I'll start from the very beginning. Our first question comes from Ava, who um, says, I've heard the term ungoverned a couple of times during this panel. 
And I'm curious to know what the meaning of it is in this context. Can anyone elucidate? Well, I guess I can try. <laughs> First, thank you all um, for that really um, meaningful and engaged and beautiful, um, I don't know, sets of, of, of reflections on the text. It really, um, feeling a lot of things over here. As you all know, I'm a triple cancer. It's no escaping it. Um, so in the text, um, you know, becoming ungovernable, which is the coda, right? That's a phrase that became really popularized in street-based, mostly anarchist, but other forms of political organizing. Um, about 15 years ago, the slogan became more and more popular. And I think what it does or what it does for me, or does two things. First is that um, unge ungovernable is actually a legal designation, as I was saying before, um, for children, right? It's, it's um, essentially what happens oftentimes is if um, a parent or guardian does not want to be um, legal, legally, um, you know, culpable for their children, that they then ask a judge to have a charge of ungovernability placed upon them, which relinquish the, relinquishes their responsibility for those children. And then, then what happens is that they're oftentimes placed in you know, juvenile jail or something like that. And of course, this disproportionately happens to trans and queer gender non-conforming people who have a antagonistic at best relationship with their parents or guardians, right? And so there's that like actual legal definition, right? And all the ways that then people build, you know, mesmerizing social worlds out of that unlivable condition is something that I'm always trying to track. Again, pointing back to the reality that, you know, these practices are not, um, as a number of y'all said, um, only something that exists in the future, but are indeed here and now. And, you know, perhaps one of our jobs is to, to pay close attention so that we might understand them to support them, right? The things that are already happening. So there's that side of it. And then the other side of it is actually about, you know, a, a kind of commitment, either conscious or not, towards being against in every way and in every instance, the crushing violence of the settler state, right? It's, you know, and, and of course it's, it's, it's not about, you know, being a perfect pure political subject, but about, you know, radically dreaming and indeed producing the world that's going to offer us something more than the death world that we have now, right? And there's, again, so many incredibly important, um, you know, historical and ongoing examples of that. Right. And so in the book, I think about, um, you know, Miss Major, who changes all of her this film um, that uh, Terminally directed, where she changes her identification, then changes it back, then changes it back again. Right. And she's just like constantly changing it around. And she's like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to be whoever I'm going to be. I'm not actually chasing the state and demanding that they recognize me. I'm actually interested in the total destruction of the state form that demands recognition as the precondition of life, right? And so to me, that's why ungovernability is so important. Thank you for that, Eric. I love that. Um, there's two questions here uh, that I want to toss out to the panelists. The first one is from Joanne Barker, who writes, wonder how the state and its corporations benefit from the violence perpetuated by its failed promises of recognition and inclusion and if or how it is possible to interfere with that benefit, or I guess how people, how those institutions benefit from trans death. 
Um, our next question is from Ames Simmons who writes, what are the panelists thoughts about the ways that Transgender Day of Remembrance is observed, setting aside one day per year to acknowledge violence against transgender people? Jules, you look pensive. Well, they're tough questions. I mean, I, you know, and it not which is not to say that they're bad questions. On the contrary, you know, you know, it's interesting. There's there's a kind of ah, I'm not sure I have anything smart to say about Trans Day of Remembrance, other than like it's tricky, you know. But but I think one thing I might say, particularly in the context of this pandemic, is how pernicious the denial of grief's conversion into militancy can be, the idea that that grief is a private matter, loss is private, or also the refusal to reckon with loss um, as a refusal to, to, to reckon with political economy and the actual calculations that have been transacted to justify mass forms of death that are also disproportionate in their effects. And so to me, you know, I, 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 you know, so I think there, there, there are probably all sorts of ways we could think about TDOR, you know, in the broader context of the uptake of, of LGBT, especially T, you know, sort of forms of, of death and um, of suffering, you know, in a kind of neoliberal culture that, that wants to, that imagines that, you know, the centering of that or its visibility is somehow in of itself important and sort of, again, tries to depoliticize. Um, but I think, in, you know, in terms of, I don't know, I, I'm interested, the, the question about the state and, and corporation, you know, it's like there's, there's, there are ways that, you know, capital certainly accumulates, you know, through through immiseration on mass scales. And, you know, there's historical antecedents here that are taken up in the book, for example, right? How the formation of, of a capitalist world economy out of the transatlantic slave trade and out of um, settler colonialism and the expropriation of resources. You know, but I also, I guess I kind of also think that one of the riddles that we often confront, and I think that we're left with precious few useful tools to understand is that, you know, like the state, the state is not a person. I mean, the state is personified often in the way that we talk about it, or capital is personified, but these are not people. <laughs> um, you know, they are, they are not individual agents. Um, and so they need not be logical or have motive or purpose, right? And I think that, I, I don't know, I just, I think it's interesting. I see this a lot, for example, around like, um, conversations about prison that are that are hanging on the edges of or in the in the, the neighborhood of becoming abolitionists but won't go there same with police right where it's like well you know America only has a this prison industrial complex because private prisons make so much money and it's like well I mean by that calculus like not really right like most prisons aren't private and it's not like that's not like the entire economy depends on imprisonment right the generation of value isn't so t intentional uh, and it can be diffuse and contradictory and that co the set of contradictions right is not inimical to the functioning of the system but is precisely how they regenerate themselves so i don't know it's just sort of interesting I think we have this sense of um, extraction because we experience it, right? That there's a lot of extraction um, through through liberal institutions and violence, right? But it's not always obvious to me that it benefit directly benefits 
right? A different group um, in so obvious a way that like I'm taking this from you and giving it to someone else. There are larger calculuses that I think are more difficult to reckon with because they're so impersonal and aggregate, right? In a sort of biopolitical, for example, concept of, of, of racism where, you know, internal race warfare inside the nation is a kind of purification ideal. And so killing is to regenerate the lives of those whose lives are valued. But but the transaction is never so one-to-one in reality, right? Um, I think of that again, to come back to that example of trans youth, you know, the white trans child whose ac- legal access to healthcare is imperiled is not like, you know, it's not like the, the copay comes from the black trans child who has been, you know, suspended from school and has been fed in. So, I, you know, it, some of this, I think, is sort of reckoning with with how the liberal liberal political grammar invites us to personify, right, these vast structures of subjectification and to think of them as motivated by animus, right? So, again, I think the difference between thinking of, like, the logic of trans panic as something that... Um, you know, an individual person who might secretly themselves be queer trans engages in because they have some internal conflict they can't resolve versus the logic of trans panic as the structuring trans misogyny of the entire social, right? And it's harder to wrestle with impersonality. I think it's really challenging to understand that people's lives are ruined and are ended and people live in misery for no reason at all, for no purpose. Right. I mean, certainly it enriches some people, but the, the logic of capitalism is just widespread immiseration. It's not more efficient. It's not better at technological advance, not better at producing outcomes, even for the privileged. You know, there are other ways to organize the world that would be infinitely better by any measure because we'd be redesigning those measures. So I don't know. I just that's sort of a, I'm not sure that's an answer to the question, but I think it's one of the kind of impulses or one of the sort of offerings from the book that emerges really clearly for me that I just feel is so helpful at this moment when a lot of people feel burnt out, um, I think, on, on, on wrestling with the state because the state, you know, is both in crisis but benefiting from its own crisis to, to extend, you know, powers of police and surveillance. And, and you know, disaster is often the best thing for, for institutions in peril, right? Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Anyways, that was just one place that I that I was going. Well, I love that. Just thinking about like uh, there's something that's some it's somewhat unsatisfying thinking that there's no sort of a clear benefit in the enactment of these forms of violence, and that there's a that the that the nature of state violence on so many levels there is a kind of arbitrary logic um, that is really hard to sit with. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask one question. Um, there's a few, but there's one in particular I wanted to surface um, and maybe give you, Eric, an opportunity to talk about this and any others, maybe Lavelle, who is writing a lot about violence. Um, uh, Cleo Sadie asks, how does remembering the dead impact your writing process? And I'm particularly struck by this question because I feel like I think about the dead and ancestors a lot in my own sort of scholarly writing and creative practice. So I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this, Eric. I mean, I think for me, um, in turning back, the the way that this is connected to um, the question of representation itself and not just representing violence, because representation, as I argue in the book, is always an accumulative process, right? So then how do we think outside or beside or whatever where we might use um, the question of violence itself? Um, 
You know, I think one of the reasons that this book took so long is because of my attempt, perhaps somewhat successfully, I'm sure incredibly failed, to um, ask myself time and again, what does it mean to do justice with and for these people who were lost to the world, right? Um, as an unanswerable question, as a methodologically unpure question, but as a kind of, I don't know, a, a manifesto, a love letter, I don't know what it is. Um, because for me, um, you know, staying in that place is the only way that we might even approximate the question of ethics when the ethical itself has shown itself to be already destroyed, right? We're just in the kind of place of, of the corporal and of these ongoing histories and of their seemingly never-ending archive, right? I mean, I look at this project. It started when I was, you know, from personal experiences, but also just like collecting, you know, a long time ago. So actual newspaper clippings, you know, and the file just never stopped growing. Um, that said, I mean, I think that there's, you know, what does it mean to attempt to open oneself up to being, you know, in relation as best we can with those that are lost? And what does it mean to also just let people be, right? I think that there's this other way in which, you know, people are trying to constantly dig up those that have had really horrible ends, right? And what, what does it mean to just let people rest, right? How can we hold that space as well? And so it's not, you know, it's a very, in, you know, incomplete answer, um, but you can see throughout the text, um, you know, I try to think um, of ambivalence as an actual um way to be with these right so it's not like i can't decide but it's the impossibility of decision itself well thank you for that we have one more question from anna ing um, who writes i'm wondering if anyone can address the violence and death of assimilation um they say i do not mean to diminish the reality tragedy and power of this disciplining of physical violence by asking this question but I'm wondering how do we analyze and assess the psychic violence of assimilation and inclusion? I'll leave that open for whoever would like to take that question. Um, I can take that one. Um, how do we analyze and assess uh, violence in that way? Um, again, really good and thorough questions. I think that the questions that have been put before us um, tonight evidence the, you know, tense relationship that Eric's book sees in everything, you know, the the world in the book and us in the world and um, structures of power and those of us who are attempting to be ungovernable, like, you know, tension and irresolution, I feel, is the effective mode throughout the, the majority of the book. And, um, I think how I would answer that question as someone who's, I mean, uh, very openly still trying to figure it out. Um, I, I think that the, not just the theoretical frameworks of thinking about violence. So when Eric is bringing in Fanon and uh, Benjamin and people like that, um, not only do those 
parts of the book help give us um, a language uh, and an orientation towards understanding that helps further the projects that we want to be inv- invested in that are considered with violence against marginalized, uh, you know, marginalized groups. But I think what also Eric's doing in the book is modeling this kind of affective, like, it seems like a really, I don't want to say tiptoe, but it's, it's a careful, it's, it's a fully careful, considerate, empathetic, and, you know, just a really careful processing and examination of their lives. Like, like they use them, um, what seems to me, you know, as someone who's also writing about scenes of violence against people like Ashley Diamond and Cece McDonald and Elon Nettles, it's, you know, you, you do get tired of reading the stories over and over in, in particular ways. And there are way, moments when they get re-narrated and different aspects of the case are um, are being looked at. So it's not just, you know, the normative anti-trans, anti-Black uh, technologies that we bring to those kinds of cases, like what the woman was wearing and just where she was or where her profession was, but rather here we have the opportunity to put that to the side mostly and to really, I like how Eric even says it, like sit in the violence, like sit in the moments with these people. Um, it feels almost like um, something I've been saying like to myself and to my partner as I've been reading this book is like, damn, I really, I really have to read this book like with Eric, like in my, in my mind at the same time. Cause like on my own, it's so, it's hard, you know, it just honestly is very hard. It's a very difficult book to read because of what's under review here. But, um, but what I think we come out with is a renewed sense and a renewed ability of how to walk through that violence and what that means, uh, and how to represent that violence and what that actually means for us here. I think that Eric has, laid out some very clear goals and people, other people's works is too, like Jules and, um, and Dean also in their work have established modes of reading and modes of, of encountering the archive that, um, that doesn't leave us completely devastated or completely without, you know, hope for better or hope for more. But, you know, um, all those invitations to those archives, I think offer us a chance to rethink the entire learning project that we're going into. Like, what is it we exactly want to know? Um, and then the last thing I'll say too is, um, I appreciate this book in particular because as a, uh, as a literary scholar, a life writing scholar, you know, uh, I all throughout my PhD wanted to avoid as much as I could moments where I had to reread or see or think about or talk about black trans women, you know, being harmed or, or dead. And not just because of my own positionalities, but also just because of the, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Pisces, so I don't have the emotional bandwidth to constantly be dealing with, um, with these things. But however, the, the joy and the, the light at the end of the tunnel that I kind of imagine Eric's books, books to be for me, especially as I'm writing my own book, um, mostly on violence and representation, um, is that there's a way, there's a, there's a, it's a way for us to step back and to really take all these different moving parts into consideration, the, the showing of violence, the logics of the state, the, the contradictory nature of those operations, and leave both feeling a little, you know, sad, like that this stuff still happens and that, you know, um, that under present circumstances, those things aren't going to go anywhere, but that we are able to 
if we ask the right questions and we pursue the right questions for the for the right reasons. And if we, I really felt the whole time with Eric reading this book, like me and Eric are in struggle with these people at the same time we're reading. And that doesn't mean that we are actually literally going through the same things that they're going through because we're not, but rather a, um, I think a collective, a collect, an evolving collective politic on the ends of the trans of trans queer subjects that is attempting to identify the state and identify things that are harmful or can be violent as something that can be read and understood and then themselves as something to be read and understood, but not along the terms that we've of course been given, but rather as something that interrupts, that can reform, that can that can make power pivot, that can do all these things. I think that this book captures um, all these different actors in a really nuanced way. And uh, I'm really excited to take that nuance into my own writing and, you know, hopefully write a dissertation about Black trans women that is, uh, that doesn't have to reproduce so much violence necessarily, but that rather uh, gives a provides a path for those uh, imagining those other life worlds that could totally possibly exist outside of this schema. So, Lavelle, thank you for that. I know we'll all be looking forward to your forthcoming work, and it's such a privilege to have been able to facilitate this conversation with many scholars whose work is on heavy rotation in my own classes and in my own work. Um, and, you know, encountering new scholars who are really just like moving the field of trans studies in some really important and necessary directions. And so I want to thank all of you for coming out tonight, for celebrating Eric Stanley and this just like beautiful, heartbreaking, powerful work, Atmospheres of Violence. I'm still like working to find the language to describe my own like intensely um, visceral response to this work. But I'm just, it's it really is a triumph. And I think something that you should be incredibly proud of and that is so welcome um, in the movements that we that we support and that we care about. And it offers us some really useful blueprints for imagining um, a future beyond kind of the, you know, the state and liberal recognition, being able to imagine freedom in different, more liberatory ways. So thank you, Eric, for your work. Thank you to all of our panelists, Jules Gill-Peterson, Lavelle Ridley, Dr. Angela Davis, Dean Spade. Thank you all for being here. Have a good night. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 